Hello, and welcome to the Still To Be Determined podcast, the podcast that follows up on topics from the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell. I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer, and I'm the older brother, and I'm never wrong. With me (laughs) is Matthew Farrell. Matt, say hello. Hello. Before we start off this episode, I wanted to point out once again, we have a way to directly support the podcast. It is at stilltbd.fm. And in the center of that page, you'll find a link. You can throw us a buck in the tip jar. I also wanted to mention that we are, if you're watching this, you know this. Yes. This podcast is also available on YouTube. So if anybody wants to actually see what we look like. Why would they want to do that? (laughs) You can check us out. (laughs) This week, we're going to be talking about geothermal energy explained. A not so hot solution. Mm-hmm. Question you, like, mark? you like you like what I did there? You like that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't like what you did there. <laughs> okay. And <laughs> you started with several puns right at the beginning, and pressure is building for you, Matt, to stop the puns. <laughs> no, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> Do you see well, what I did there? Yes. Once again, mom would be so proud of us. Yes, absolutely. So obviously with this one, you're talking about getting heat from the earth. It seemed to me like the means of getting the most out of this energy production was actually the one with the least energy production, which was the modular version that you talked about. Yeah. And I'm curious, that's a startup and they're still in testing phase. Is that where they are? Yeah, I think they're in the pilot phase right now. Yep. And it's a U.S. company. And it seemed like it was in the same vein as other modular energy production solutions that you've talked about in other videos. And I wonder, have you seen in your research around these topics, have you seen modularity as a key component or an expanding component in in this field? Because it really does seem like there's an embracing of the idea that not one size will fit all. Interesting that you bring that up. I haven't thought about talking about this in a broader sense, but there is absolutely a modularity across all these different things from small modular reactors (laughs) to this. It's like you're seeing this trend more and more. And even like from the vertical farming, there's that modular using basically trailers to create these expandable systems. The benefit of it is it simplifies production because you're not having to do crazy custom tailored solutions for a specific region. You have the same exact module and it's like, oh, you just need 10. You need four. You need six. It makes it very easy to scale. And by making it easy to produce, it reduces the the manufacturing and production costs of making that single unit. So it's a way to be more cost effective and uh, reduce the costs of installing these systems across the board, which is part of the reason why I think we're seeing more and more of it in all these different energy generation and energy storage systems. Like think about like Tesla's mega packs. It's like, how many mega packs do you need? Oh, you need a hundred of them or you need 50 of them. It's the, the modular approach is definitely where things seem to be kind of gravitating towards. In the hydroelectric video you had about a month ago, the, the small units that are sunk to the bottom of a river floor and yep. have a slow moving propeller and they looked a little bit like just like a turtle just like sunk to the bottom yep um that same concept of well if you have enough terrain at the bottom of a river you can put in 12 of those or three or 19 whatever would fit um 
And it seems like that also is a very useful approach for exporting this technology. Mm -hmm. Because as opposed to trying to take a place that might not have the infrastructure or the real estate in order to put in a major hydroelectric dam, Mm -hmm. if you are able to sell a set of 20 of a smaller thing and, and they can be used in the regions where who's to say there's, there's not just barely enough room for one of those geothermal units in an area, but there would be room for three of the hydroelectric units, right? Mixing and matching almost like, you know, picking from a buffet yep. of being yep. able to help a region shore up its grid and not be over invested in one technology that if it turns out to not be the right fit for a region, there's, mm-hmm. there's more flexibility in being able to redirect yourself. If something doesn't work, you can change direction and try something else as opposed yep. to, well, we've got this dam now. So yeah, exactly. Is there anything on the horizon from this perspective, the modularity that you're going to be talking about in the future in a future video? Actually, there's a video I'm working on right now around passive homes, passive solar net zero homes. I did a video on net zero buildings, like office buildings. I've been looking into houses and there's interesting companies that are creating modular homes for net zero homes. So like they have kind of pre-configured styles that you can pick from but they're still customizable within that. And the way they're built is they're built literally in a warehouse somewhere else. And the sections of the home are then shipped already manufactured to the location. And then it's like Lego blocks stacking on top of a basement foundation that's been built on site. Hmm. And so typically when you're building a, a stick home, when you're building it from the ground up, everything on site, you know, it takes while to put the framing together and to build the walls up, put the insulation in. And here come these homes that when they slap them into place, it's literally like it, from one day, all you have is a basement. And at the end of the day, you literally have the entire structure is already built. And then you just have to put the siding on and then do the insides. So it's, it's really cool to see that this modular approach is also in homemaking now too. It would be a little terrifying if your builders show up and they have giant round yellow heads and expressions (laughs) that don't change and hands without thumbs. (laughs) It could be a little scary, but I get what you mean about the, the advantages of modular thinking. I want to dive into the comments on this video and, and one of the comments that stood out, which started a little conversation was from Hetola who wrote, this is actually a field where the oil industry can easily and cheaply improve the process. Once again, it seems like there's a connection between the technology at work here and the technology in growing fields. I'm reminded again of the air compression battery Mm -hmm. systems that you talked about and how the oil industry already uses components that could be easily uh, converted to that model. And This person's comment was in the same vein in response to their comment from Bradley Mossman. He wrote, I work for an oil field service company in this difficult time. Our company has been quoting to some geothermal companies. The expertise is definitely available. So I found it really strangely encouraging. Yes. I was like, I was like, 
I, I read that comment and I was almost like, oh, what a relief. Yeah. <laughs> As if this was something I've been worried about. Like, but when is the oil industry going to recognize this? It's nice to see that there is some recognition on their part that there is, uh, they have to expand into these other areas because the handwriting is on the wall. It's not necessarily soon, but a hundred years from now, will we have the oil fields that we have now? I don't know. Will the industry be focused in the same way as it is now on one area? But even companies that like thinking about it from the oil company perspective of how they seem to be seeing the writing on the wall and they're shifting on a more like microcosm point of view, it's like uh, the actual workers that make up these companies as this transition happens, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs because yeah. as things shift and like you brought up the liquid air energy storage, uh, geothermal, it's like there is there's no retraining necessary. It's like literally you have the right skills to do this thing over here. It's just, it's not oil anymore. It's, you know, drilling for geothermal or it's, you know, installing these gas systems that are for storing air for energy storage. So it's a one-to-one, -one, which makes it such a seamless transition. So these oil workers, natural gas workers will have the same jobs they have today. They're just doing something different with it, which is really, right. really cool and exciting. There's a, a reality to huge segments of the populations. And unfortunately, a lot of it is consolidated in specific pockets in the country uh, and globally around who is most impacted by transitions from coal and oil and gas to yep. renewable energies, whether by design in the form of programs to re-educate people into different fields or by accident, such as the interchangeability of technology from one technology around oil to, oh, this is also usable in geothermal. We have to pay attention to those yep. transitions and the impact on people's lives. Because if tomorrow it was announced that a law had been changed that effectively takes my job away, yes, it doesn't matter if the job going away <clears throat> is a collective good for a million other people. Yeah. I personally will respond with, wait a minute, what that yeah. you're, you're hurting me. You are, it's, you know, you're cutting me off of the body and unfairly and with, and the people who are most impacted by that are of course going to be the people least capable of writing it out. It's not going to be the CEOs of the oil companies who are going to saying, be saying, what, what did you do? Yeah. Yep. They're going to land fine. It's going to be the people who go to work, you know, getting up at 5 a.m. to get to an oil field at 6 a.m. so that they can work for a 12-hour shift. It's those people are going to be impacted and, and that needs to be recognized and yep. wrestled with. It's not an easy solution, but it needs to be, it needs to be dealt with. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of viewers respond to my solar panel videos when I bring up the levelized cost of energy generation. They, uh, several people have rightfully so pointed out I should be using the quotes for energy with solar paired with batteries because that's the only way that that technology will really be viable and it's not fair to just only talk about the solar generation because without the storage it's not complete and they're completely right and it's like when you talk about this transition it's energy generation storage and then jobs it's like we can't forget about that jobs side of the business yeah. of of how this is going to impact so many people and having you said re-education, which is probably the right way to phrase this. We have to re-educate you. <laughs> yeah. Retraining. Re retraining. Yeah, and, retraining. And, having, and ha figuring out ways that there are, you know, 
point A to point B is a clear path for these people so that when, so they aren't losing jobs, it's just transitioning jobs. It's like the more we, we have to figure that out. It has to be part of the puzzle. And it's nice to see that the Biden administration is trying to address that exact point as part of their, um, transition plan for cleaner energy. So yeah, it's nice to see that that's being taken into account now. Yeah. And the difficulty is a transition like that is always going to be inherently difficult, but pushing the other way and doubling down on status quo is not the solution. No, it is not going to work. Yeah. At best, you delay a hard transition by 10 years or 20. And at worst, you set the entire field back so far that catching up with other industries in other parts of the world are going to, it's going to be impossible. You're going to, you're going to effectively be trying to build a fire while also dumping water on the wood. And yeah, it's, it's not going to work. This past week, I actually just talked to two executives, two different, uh, renewable energy companies. Um, I I can't name who they were yet, but I, I, in both of those conversations, what came up was a similar theme where they both said, there's kind of like, there's the utilities and the energy companies that clearly have their head in the sand and they're pretending that none of this is happening. And then there's the group that is the, we're on the tip of the spear, we're jumping all in. And then there's this third group that's kind of in the middle, they're reluctantly going along because they see the writing on the wall, but they're going a little too slow, but at least they're starting to move. And so he said, what he's seeing is the companies are clearly heads in the sand. They're going to fall so far behind, they're just going to be gone. They're not going to survive the next decade. And so it's interesting to hear this coming from people who are working in the industry that are saying they're seeing this shift happening in the mindsets of utilities and oil companies. And even, even, um, there's a video I have coming up on, uh, lithium mining. And I talked to a company that's doing some really interesting things with trying to improve that the mining industry is really reluctant to change. And he has a technology that's radically different. And it's interesting to hear how he's trying to chip away and get them to shift. And he's starting to make inroads with some of these companies. But once once one company makes the change and shows that they can (laughs) increase their profit margins by 250%, it's like every other one is going to come flying because they're going to have to. So it's like, we're we're starting to see this transition, but it's, it's happening kind of slowly and then it's going to suddenly ramp up and be really fast. It's, it's not going to be a linear change. Well, I'm reminded of, as you're talking about all of this, like you have Tesla. Yeah. And you know, they're clearly at the vanguard of a, of an industry. And there's been two things in the news recently that I picked up on. One was GM announcing that all their cars would be electric by, I want to say it was 2030 or 2040. It was 20, it was 2030 or 2035. I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it, it was may have been 2035. I think it yeah. was, it was more than it's more 10 than years. Yeah. yeah. More than 10 years. And that news was my response to that was like, that's great that they made that announcement. It was, it's an audacious plan for them to, to do. It seems very doable. Yes. Like uh, effectively a 15 year plan to transition completely from combustion engine into electric seems very doable. But to go back to things you and I have talked about in the past, is it is it too late? Is it too late for a company like that to be able to catch up and make something that is workable in the same way? And then another thing in the news that I just read today, which was 
it was an article about stock and stock prices. Mm-hmm. And Apple has been going through a big jump in its stock price recently. Mm-hmm. And there's speculation that they are building a car. Oh, yeah. Yep. And I thought, okay, a company whose phone I enjoy is potentially buying a car or building a car. A company that has built cars for decades announces a 15-year plan mm-hmm. to transition completely to electric. If I had to put money on which company I think will be around in 15 years, yeah. I would put my money down on Apple. Yes. <laughs> that is an, I think that is a good illustration of what you just described. Yes. Of companies that are either in denial or slow to adapt, it may be too much for them yep. to play catch up. And I, and I look at GM in that way. It's like, what a shame. And you think about all the thousands of people who are employed by GM. Maybe they can get jobs at Apple as Apple yeah. <laughs> potentially ramps up a car production company. Well, the, the thing about that though, Sean, is they are most likely not going to make it themselves. They're going to partner with a company like how Foxconn builds the iPhones for them. Right. The rumor has been that they were going to be working with Hyundai Kia, but that kind of looks like that's not happening. But they're probably going to partner with a company that can produce them for them, Um, which is going to be a huge boon for that company because that's going to be a revenue stream that's going to be awesome. But it's your point is, I think, spot on. And part of the reason for that is companies transitioning are having a hard time because they have billions and billions and billions of dollars invested into how to manufacture ICE cars. And companies who are coming at this brand new right now, like Rivian and Lucid and Tesla are coming at it from, hey, we don't have that baggage. We can build factories that build batteries and electric cars from scratch and they can spin it up much faster. So where existing car manufacturers need a decade to slowly transition, a new EV company can like Apple if they wanted to. People are very, I find it funny how people are so like, there's no way they can put out a car in four or five years. There's no way. And it's like, are you kidding? Apple's the richest company in the world. They have the deepest pockets. If they wanted to put out a car in three years, they probably can. It's like yeah. they can just throw money at it and make yeah. it happen. And it's like they're coming at it fresh. So it's like they can work with partners who know how to build an EV and they can spin that thing up as fast as they possibly can, where GM is going to have a hard time making this transition. And if they incorporate the Apple Watch technology into the car, the car will actually tell you if you have an arrhythmic heartbeat. So. Well, I'm looking forward to driving my car and constantly having going bing bing and having Siri go, yes. <laughs> it's like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say anything, Siri. One last question from the comments. This is from Kyle Kramer. Loving this renewable energy series, Matt. Have you looked into dandelion at all? Why? And you responded, yes. I actually have been. Yes. And I was wondering if you could give us a tease as to what is dandelion and are you working on a video around that? I am working on a video around geothermal heating and cooling for homes. And dandelion is a company that specializes in making that happen. And right now they're US based and they're pretty much focused in the Northeast where I live. So it's like they kind of service mainly New York State because oil use for heating is pretty much in the United States of all the oil use that's used to heat people's homes, something like 83% of it is here in the Northeast. And so it's really expensive. It's very dirty. And the whole idea is you can transition from oil into geothermal and it will cost you actually less in the long, cost you way less in the long run 
than sticking with oil. So it's kind of like solar. It's like you get solar in your house. It's a little more expensive up front, but in like four years, it pays for itself. It's like, it's the same thing with geothermal. It's like, it's a little more expensive up front, but in six years, it pays for itself and it will last for 30 more beyond that. So it's, it's, (laughs) it's kind of nuts to have a heating and cooling system that theoretically will earn its keep and then be basically a profit maker maker for you after a certain point because it's so efficient and so so good it's like i would love to have a geothermal system but in my current house cost wise it doesn't make sense with natural gas is so cheap geothermal is so expensive up front the, the cost benefit analysis doesn't quite work out for me in my current house but if i build a new house or got a new house and had to install something, then I probably would be doing ge- geothermal. But it's like, that's what dandelion does is they, they help you uh, walk that field of finding the most economical geothermal system and getting all the tax credits and rebates and things that you can get for it. So it's, it's an interesting company. Interesting. I look forward to that video. So now we will transition to the second half of our show. As we usually do, we talk about some things that we are watching, either television or movies and Matt, I'm flipping a coin. Uh-oh. Here we go. <laughs> Do you want to call it? I'm going to call it Tails. It is Tails. You get to go first. <laughs> Yay! Uh, there's just two things. I want to kind of follow up. Last episode, I brought up how I started watching Babylon 5, and I thought it was just horrific. And I was like, how, how do people Dumpster love fire. this? Yeah. yeah. How yeah. do people love this show? Well, I'm probably about two thirds of the way through season one and i'm starting to get glimmers of okay i i think i see why people like this show i still think it's a bad show in the general (laughs) sense of things the acting has gotten better it has gotten better but it's still a little hacky um the writing has absolutely gotten better people are saying things that seem like human beings speaking from emotion where instead of just being action yeah. man talking about getting in but it's, it's it felt like kids playing with toys in the beginning and now it feels like it's starting right. to feel a little more natural um i don't I'm know if that's shoot be- you with my laser booster boom boom right. boom, boom. Yeah. my laser booster blew you up boom boom yeah yeah so now it's and starting to get later the- on it's like i'm scared of the laser booster yeah so it's like I'm, I'm getting to the point now where it's getting to the end of the season and they've been setting up larger plot points for there's this big story that's happening that's where it felt like it was 1960s doctor who quality filmmaking with star trek light storytelling it now is starting to feel like doctor who 1960s quality (laughs) set dressing with something that's completely different from star trek which is it's surprising me how it's it's it felt like it was trying to be star trek and then it's starting to diverge and it's like this is something completely different so i still don't say hey go out and watch it but yeah. it's more of a, I'm becoming more hopeful that I actually will start to really enjoy the show, genuinely enjoy the show where it's like, I'm starting to see the seeds of a good show there. And it'll be interesting to see if it does pay off in seasons two and three and stuff like that. So it's my takeaway is, Hey, okay. It's, it's no longer painful to watch. <laughs> Just my one quick comment mm-hmm. to follow up on all that is I think it is a little bit like a mix of Dr. Who with a soap opera. Yeah. Yes. That's a good, that's a good analogy. Yeah. It's a yeah. kind of a good way to describe it. Um, the other thing I want to kind of bring up is there's a new show on sci-fi. There's a theme here. I like science fiction shows. Uh, there's a new show on sci-fi called resident alien with Alan Tudyk. 
Uh, and I, you know, if anybody who watched Firefly, I, I love that guy. He is, he is, he's actually got some really good dramatic chops, but his comic timing is just unbeatable. He is so just impeccable timing of his comic delivery is just yeah. incredible. But he can turn on a dime and make something suddenly feel very emotional. Um, so it's, he's really good. Uh, this show is, he plays an alien that crash landed on Earth. And it, this is not giving anything away. This comes out really pretty much right at the beginning. Yeah. He basically was coming to Earth to drop a device that was going to destroy all of us. And he crash landed. So now he's had to assume a human form, which is Alan Tudyk. And he's trying, to, he's in the middle of Alaska and he's trying to find the device that fell off his ship when he crashed. And he's trying to do it before the humans discover this stuff when the snow starts to melt. And then he's been called into the town because the person he took the appearance of is a <laughs> criminal pathologist and doctor. And the town needs a doctor and they come to him for an emergency. So he's now having to learn on the fly. He thinks humans are dumb apes. And so it's like he's he's basically playing the role of a town doctor. And he's a, <laughs> it is, the show is fantastic because his character has learned how to speak English and how to behave by watching Law and Order. Okay. And he like he's obsessed <laughs> with the show Law and Order. So like when he when they call him in to look at a dead body, he gets genuinely giddy of like I get to solve a murder. He's like he's all super excited about it because he loves Law and Order. So it's it's really a very funny, quirky show, but it's got this real dark streak because he's here to kill us all. Right. But he's also trying to hide and hijinks ensue so it's it's one right. of those he is his physical comedy of playing a alien in human form the way, little th ways he holds his hands when you see him in his normal form it makes sense why he's in this he holds his hands in a certain like t-rex kind of way it's like you understand why he walks the way he does why he talks the way he does because of the way he it's like his physicality of this role is just awesome I'm not saying this is a great show. It's it's I would say it's good. It's a good show. But mm -hmm. my wife and I are laughing hysterically at the show. It's really really funny. It's it's a it's basically a comedy. It's a dark comedy. Um, yeah. So I would I'd recommend checking it out if you have can get the sci-fi app. You can watch these episodes for free. They're loaded with commercials that you have to sit through, but it's mm -hmm. free. So I would recommend just checking out the first couple episodes. It's fun. I love Alan Tudyk. He's my favorite character in Rogue One. Yeah. Um, he's K2SO in that. My hope is that he will reprise that role in yeah. the series that's going to be based around Diego Luna's character from mm -hmm. that movie. I'm a big fan of him in the first season of Doom Patrol, where yeah. he is one of the best villains that's ever been in a superhero show. Yes. Uh, who's constantly breaking the fourth wall. And as you said, the his ability to combine comedy with dark drama and even malevolence is impressive. Mm -hmm. He's also in a great movie, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Tucker and Dale are friends in a mountain cabin. And when a bunch of college-aged teens show up, they believe that Tucker and Dale are malevolent hillbilly killers. <laughs> and it ends up being a dark comedy of these young people in effect killing themselves in terrible ways but in ways that keep reaffirming for the other kids 
that the two hillbillies are responsible for doing this. (laughs) So it's things like (laughs) accidentally throwing themselves into wood chippers, accidentally cutting their own heads off with chainsaws. And these two poor hillbilly guys standing there covered in blood going, oh my God, did you see what they did? And then from another angle, here comes another college student who just sees a blood-soaked hillbilly holding the chainsaw. Yeah. It is a very funny, uh, very bloody comedy. I would put it in the in the same vein as um, Army of Darkness. It's that okay. kind of yeah. It's that kind of movie. It's a yeah. lot of fun. So the two things I wanted to talk about were once again um, following up on the Polly Platt filmography that my girlfriend and I are going through. We had a strangely forgotten comedy which is available on YouTube. I don't mean you can rent it from YouTube. I mean, if you look for it on YouTube, you will find a surreptitiously uploaded version of this movie. It is not available for rent or streaming or even purchase anywhere. I'm not sure who holds the rights to what that are keeping it from being available. I don't know if it was intentionally just let adrift because of concerns about what the content is, but it's the movie young doctors in love and it's from 1982 and it was directed by Gary Marshall and it stars Michael McKean and Sean Young. And it is the story. It's basically a, if you remember soap dish, which is a brilliant take on soap operas and the construction of soap operas. This movie is effectively a soap opera combined with the comedy of a movie like Airplane. It is not a great movie, and it has an opening 30 minutes that you kind of just have to sit through and be like, I don't really think I'm laughing at anything. But by the time you get to the end, it has found its stride. Again, not a great movie, but at the end of it, we were both thinking, I'm glad I watched that. It was fun. And it's just interesting to see an actor like Sean Young and Michael McKean in a movie like this where he's doing dramatic stuff that you don't normally see Michael McKean doing. And she's doing comedy stuff that you don't usually see her do. Mm -hmm. And it has a ton of cameos that if you don't actually know soap operas, you won't get. So I didn't know them because I don't know soap operas, but you can tell when the soap opera stars show up, including an uncredited Susan Lucci. So it's, it's an interesting little film. The other one I wanted to talk about is a brand new movie. It is one of the films that is being released right now, not for rent, but for effectively theater at home. Mm -hmm. So it will cost you $20 to view. And my girlfriend was very interested in it, even though she didn't know anything about it. She was just interested in it and wanting to support it. And my response was, if we want people to continue to make new movies, we're occasionally going to have to pay as if we were going to a theater. Yep. So I have no problem with that. You know, we support things in the vein of our HBO Max subscription, our Netflix and Hulu subscriptions, and that's all fine. But for something like this, this was an opportunity it felt like to actually kind of vote on yeah. a movie to yeah. actually kind of like put my hand up and say, like, keep making stuff like this. Yeah. And it's the movie Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. And it is written by Kristen Wiig yeah. and Annie Mumolo who were the writers behind Bridesmaids. This is not commentary film around relationships 
and friendships and a woman's role in the world the way that Bridesmaids was. This is, it's hard to say what it is. It is absolutely one of the most joyous and funny movies I've seen in a long time. Uh-huh. We laughed at this in a, in a way that we haven't laughed for, I mean, literally months. It felt like this is a vaccination against depression <laughs> during this pandemic era that was sorely needed. And I absolutely love this movie. And I know it's a movie I will want to watch again. This is a movie that when it is available for streaming through some service or rent, I will absolutely want to pick it up again. It's a, it's the kind of movie that I would like to own. Mm-hmm. It stars alongside both Mumolo and Wig. It also stars Jamie Dornan, who is most famous for Fifty Shades of Grey. Yep. And he was also in a series called The Fall, where he played a killer. So good. That show is so good. And that show is very good. Fifty Shades of Grey... Yeah, very serious, hypersexual storyline. The fall, dark, sociopathic killer storyline. And here's a comedy. I have a feeling that Dornan and his agent were like, get me anything else. Yeah. Find me a way to expand into other territories. And this comedy, which is full of full-on musical numbers that come out of nowhere, pun work, setups of long boiling jokes that don't pay off until literally like the last 10 minutes, five minutes of the movie. Right. And he has a musical number in this in which he keeps singing to seagulls. And I loved it. I loved it. Kristen Wiig plays two characters. The main storyline being that Kristen Wiig and Annie Momolo's characters are middle-aged women who are roommates and their lives are just perfect reflections of each other. They finish each other's sentences. They do the same things with each other. They are 24 hours a day with each other. Right. They are not individuals. And it is the story of the two of them learning to find space between them so they can actually see each other and actually have a stronger friendship as a result. But the hard transition into that is the conflict of the story. There's a B-plot, which is Kristen Wiig's other character, who is effectively a Bond villain. (laughs) who wants to destroy the town of Vista Del Mar and her Machiavellian schemes to destroy the town intersect with these two women who are just on a vacation. Like I said, I laughed more at this than I have laughed at a lot of things during the past year. And when the movie was over and we were just sitting quietly on the, on the couch. It was the kind of movie that I wanted to give it the respect it deserves. So we watched the entirety of the credits. Uh-huh. And there are some, you know, closing scenes at the end of the credits. Right. But nothing that made it, like, I wouldn't have missed anything by not watching the entirety of the credits. But I felt like this is a movie that was just like, if I was in a theater, I would sit in the seat until the end of the, the credits. That's, that's how I felt about this movie. Show it the respect. I turned to my girlfriend and I said, that much laughing, I can feel the oxygen in my lungs in the way I haven't felt it in a long time. (laughs) It was so relaxing. I felt so good. And so I very, very heartily recommend checking out Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. And I also said at the end of the movie, if they made another movie with these two characters in any context, I'm in line. I'm ready to go. Yeah. So I saw an interview with, I saw an interview with Kristen Wiig 
where she described that they came up with those characters during Bridesmaids. Mm-hmm. And they would just joke around creating like storylines around them, just talk as them. And they got all into it and they started trying to pitch this as, hey, what if we did this? And everybody's kind of like, what? No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> so they finally yeah. they finally sat down and came up with a entire plot for a movie that finally got, you know, they got the backing they needed. But it's just funny to think that this started as just a, a joke between friends while filming a completely it different feels- movie. It has that feeling. And I think yeah. because it has that feeling, it feels like it's full of love. Yeah. So it's, it's the, the two characters are unlike something like I, I compared it to a lot of the Will Ferrell movies or the Adam Sandler movies from the past 10 years. You're laughing at the characters, but you love the characters. Yeah. You don't, you aren't disrespecting the characters. You see, them as loved people as opposed to something where you're mocking the character. Right. And there are a number of moments where people within the world that they've constructed kind of like scratch their head with a response to what the characters are doing with the like, like what, what you're doing, what? Yeah. But immediately after that moment, those same characters smile and hug and encourage those characters to continue to embrace that kind of vision of what the world is, is like for them. So it's not a world pointing its fingers at these two people and saying, let's mock these two and take them down a peg. It is the world kind of saying like, well, good for you guys. Good. Yeah. yeah like that's great. And so it resonates with this love for these two characters that just, it just builds in a way that makes you feel so good when you're done with it. So I, the movie that I felt like it was most similar to in style of comedy was kids in the hall brain candy. Okay. Yeah. Which it's an excuse to have like, like, do you have a plot? Yes. But it's more of a plot as an excuse to be able to hang all these things on. Yeah. And here's a little bit of comedy that comes out of physical comedy. And here's a bit that comes out of a musical number. And here's a bit that goes into a parody of a bond film and here, like just trying different things and weaving through them and just having fun. And, and it really works. So cool. Thumbs up, thumbs up. I'm going to check that out. So everybody out there who's listening or maybe even watching should let us know if they've checked out any of the things we've been talking about. We've received a number of uh, responses from listeners around some of the things that we've talked about in the past, but we are hungry to know, have you experienced Babylon 5 and want to defend it? Or do you want to warn <laughs> Matt off the path before he gets too deep into it? Yeah. Or have you seen Barb and Star? And do you think I'm wrong and it was just the dumbest thing you've ever seen? You can find our contact info in the podcast description. We now have a way to directly support the podcast. You can visit stilltbd.fm. You'll see the support the podcast link right in the center of the screen. We thank you for any support you're willing to give. And again, I will suggest to people, you can check us out on YouTube where you can actually see the faces that go with the voices. I am not going to promise that you won't be confused by a similarity in how we look. (laughs) We had nothing to do with it. No, out of our control. Out of our control. Yeah. But if you're going to continue listening to this as a podcast, we support that as well. So check us out wherever your podcasts are picked up. You know where those places are. 
please be sure to give us a rating, a review, and share us with your friends. It really does help the podcast. The podcast really does help the channel. The channel helps Matthew, and then Matthew helps me. We'll talk to you again next time. Thanks so much for listening.